Hey, thinkers, welcome to this week's Thinking Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jeffrey Wu, and I have a really special guest today, one of my favorite people that I've met in the last probably year. I mean, honestly. Wow, um, thank you. His name is Dr. Emmanuel Lamb, and we first met in the biohacking community. Um, and he has a very impressive resume, both in medicine, science, as well as an entrepreneur. I'm really excited to have Dr. Manny join us as a lead medicine and science officer, really adding to the firepower on the team here in terms of medicine, clinical, as well as uh, offering thought leadership to our uh, community of fasters and biohackers and folks uh, listening uh, to the Thinking Podcast today. I imagine that Manny will be joining us when we talk to really interesting researchers and, and practitioners of biohacking in, in the coming episodes. So to give you a quick sense of his background, Manny got his uh, undergraduate degree in computer science and finished his medical degree MD at Brown University, did his residency at Stanford Medical School, and has been a practicing hospitalist. Hospital ex- hospitalist. Hospitalist. I can let him explain what that means for the last couple of years. And he's actually a clinical medical instructor at Stanford University. So... Uh, trainees that already have their MD are taught by Dr. Manny of how to be a real doctor. He may look very young, um, but he's he's an experienced physician and experienced biohacker. How young would you say I look? Well for the that's that's an incentive for the YouTube folks out there to get a get a look of Oh I see. Of, oh this uh, is gonna be on YouTube. So we're gonna be on YouTube, SoundCloud, oh, okay. Apple, Google Play. So all channels. So extra incentive to see Manny live uh, on video. For the, for the video watchers. So let's dive into it. I mean, I think, obviously, we know the, our story of how, to meet, how we met together, but I want to even start uh, before then. Um, you know, you've become a critical part of our fasting community. Uh, we fast as well as adding a lot of leadership to the science team here as we're producing more and more research and more and more uh, reviews on nootropics and different biohacks. Uh, what got you interested in optimizing and biohacking in the first place? Yeah, so... Um, I think as a hospitalist, just to, for uh, the viewers or the listeners that uh, are wondering what a hospitalist is. So for a hospitalist, hospitalists generally see patients who become acutely sick. Right. Um, so they either had some chronic illness and all of a sudden they had an act exacerbation or they have some sort of acute illness and they require inpatient, you know, versus outpatient, inpatient admission. And so these patients generally require an inpatient stay and they need to stay over the hospital. They require a more frequent labs, vital sign checks. And so in general, they're, they're sicker. So you're in charge of the, like the sicker cohort of people that are in hospital. You're overseeing them. You're triaging them. You're providing treatment right. and, and care for them. Yeah. I'm sort of the uh, quarterback of patients who are admitted to the hospital. What do you even think of the term biohacking? Yeah. Like, I think that's like one thing that like, I think right. when you've been talking to more and more media now as, right. you know, our science, Nutribox science lead, is that like, hey, what, what, what is biohacking to you? Biohacking to me at first had a negative connotation. I mean, the word hacking just, I just think of a machete. Yeah. And then we're just chopping up the human body and hoping that, you know, something that, Yeah, it's super funny because like, as a computer scientist, when I think hacking, hacking to me is just like coding, right? Like very much from like engineering, like creative solutions to problem solving. But I was in Austin for a body hacking convention literally last weekend and we had the same question. And like, and, and I think that's like, it's, it, that's like a very good point, right? Like hacking for most people is, yeah, 
like an axe murderer chopping up things right. or like a nefarious computer right. programmer stealing your Bitcoin or stealing your, <laughs> your grandma's uh, bank account and, 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 and retirement savings. Right. So, that, so, yeah. yeah. For, for me, my, my, when I think about biohacking, at first I thought it, was it had a very negative connotation. We're like hacking up the human body and hopefully the things that we, we, we're just giving tons of substrates and hopefully that, you know, you come out like positive at the right. end. Whereas like in the Silicon Valley, I think ha hacking tends to have a more positive connotation where you're able to, instead of, you know, you're, you're able to get to an outcome more efficiently, right. you know? Uh, there's, there, you know, I feel like there's a lot of code and then all of a sudden you like hack it and then all of a sudden you, you, you have a solution like right. a lot quicker. Right. Um, so when I first got into it, I was like, what is this biohacking thing? It just seems like you're just randomly giving substrates, you're randomly giving things and hope there's hope for the better. Right. right. But the more I look into it, I think that biohacking to me is really how do you optimize the human body? And I think that the assumption is that we already know how to optimize the human body. When you're talking about going from disease to normal or normal to like enhanced, we're assuming that normal is like normal. Like there's, there's no need to, you know, there's a status quo, right. but the status quo of normal isn't necessarily a good spot, you know? So, and it's not necessarily optimized yet. Right. And I, th I think that that's where, you know, Nutribox and uh, enhancement comes in, but I actually think that the normal average human being, if you look at the CDC statistics of the American population, yep. you know, greater than 33% obese, you know, one out of 11 patients. overweight and or obese. Yeah. yeah. And then one out of 11 have diabetes and the average American is not normal. Right. The average American is actually diseased. Yep. And my understanding, of, and, and, and then one of the things I realized is that, you know, there's, in, in terms of understanding how to, biohack you know it's not just about giving substrates into this black box right you have to understand what the black box is and understand what the black box is is really understanding medicine understanding like biochemistry understanding nutrition and metabolism right. if we're talking about like nutrition it's really important to understand biochemistry and metabolism yep. and, and one of the stunning things i learned recently talking with you know practitioner like like professional medical doctors like yourself is that there's only four hours of lecture for nutrition in medical school that's true like i'll, I'll like, tell you about so, my experience when i yeah so like i think like frankly i'm smarter than most doctors in like in <laughs> nutrition and in in, in in specific zones of biohacking because i've looked at the biochemistry i've looked at the nutrition right like, i'm talking to experts in all the spaces and it's like it's kind of sad because these are the core things that we do on a daily basis right like I, we are constantly sort of medicating ourselves with the food that we eat, the protocols that we do. And I think that's um, like why this approach is very interesting. Right. But before you get into, I think two, three, I want to first get back to the original question. How did you get yourself get into biohacking before you get too abstract here? Right. Um, so I got into biohacking, you know, within the last couple of years. And I think that there was always, I think in my, you know, self actualization that I really wanted to be better than I am. Yep. I understand that there's ways to be more efficient, there's strategies to be more efficient when it comes to like time management or whatnot. And I think I came to the point where I started to think, hey, is there any way I can like think faster right. or be more focused right. or have more attention, uh, remember things more clearly, uh, be able to speak my mind more clearly in public. Right. Um, and then I started looking into what other people are doing in the space. And I think that I'm lucky to be in the Silicon Valley because there's a lot of very, very successful people. And from 
and and if if you are you're probably like the average of like the your, the five people that you're surrounded by, right? So if you're surrounded by f the five people who are always about human enhancement, there must be something that they're doing right about like enhancing themselves. Sure. Yeah. Right. So I, I wanted to kind of just see what the Silicon Valley has been doing. There's a lot of people who are always want to be better than themselves yep. in Silicon Valley. So, you know, I, I started like reaching out to see what people are doing and I started looking into caffeine and L-theanine. I started looking into yeah, which is the basis of the stack for Sprint and GoCube. Exactly. And then I started looking into interesting herbs because I've heard a lot of friends say that they actually have, you know, whether it's a, a subjective sensation that they're actually thinking more clearly. Right. And, uh, you know, I, tr I tried, you know, the stacks, including caffeine and l and, and I started, you know, I, I sensed like there was some sort of improvement in my like memory and cognition right. and, and attention. So I started digging a little bit more. And then the more you dig into this community, then I started finding out about like fasting and like ketosis. Right. And we can start talking about that now or later, but yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting topic. Let's yeah. get into that a little bit later. Yeah. But, but I think that the, that the milieu that we're a part of in the Silicon Valley is always about becoming better than yourself. Right. And yeah, that's, that's how I got started. And I started, you know, doing these N equals one experiments on yourself. Right. Um, it's not, you know, generalizable to the public, yeah, it's, but we, we know it's not yeah. science There's in, like, in the pure form of like, right. Hey, this is a repeatable placebo backed randomized controlled trial, but that doesn't mean you can get some insight from it. Right? right. So I think it's just like, these are like, yeah, we know that, you know, this is not like definitively proving causal relationships, yeah. which is the point of an RCT. Right. And I think that, but I, it is very right. like strong signals of how we're optimizing ourselves as humans. Yeah. One thing I had to go into, which is not always, the mindset of a lot of doctors or like physicians in the in in America is that I had to go in with an open mind. You know, I know there's not necessarily a lot of randomized control trials or studies on certain things, but I'm assuming that there's more to you know nootropics than just caffeine. Right. There's other herbs or supplements that potentially could enhance your mind and enhance. Your yeah. No. I think. Memory. I mean. I think it's funny because you came it from a medical perspective. I came it from it from a engineering skeptic right like mm -hmm. i'm trained in systems thinking i you know i think from first principles meaning i think from like basic laws of physics and biology and build my intuition up from there and you know it's funny because you, you mentioned that there's there should be more things than just caffeine well that's like one thing that i i talk about a lot like there are drugs compounds like alcohol mm -hmm. marijuana that True. shift your mental state in one direction right probably not super productive but maybe on the creative aspect or something like lowers your inhibitions there's things like protein powder or creatine that have some sign of increasing physical performance etc it stands to reason that there are compounds in this universe that are not caffeine yeah. that can enhance your cognition I mean, we already know that i mean uh you know, there's Ritalin, methylphenolate. Right. So there's there's, there's like compounds. ADHD therapeutics, right. and then there's like nootropics that are sustainable for long term use. Right. I think that when I was like, hey, like it's not like we're asking for free lunch, or we're just like there's a universe of things out there that may be able to help our cognition. Let's actually like go through the peer reviewed science. Let's actually put together mm -hmm. the best clinically shown products around it. I think that was the insight for me. Like, hey, there's something interesting here. A lot of people are doing it. Let's make it a really smooth experience for people. Right. And I think. It's, it's, it's great because I think we ourselves, you know, for, for the listeners out there and people that just been following our N equals one experiments, we're pretty like, uh, 
out there in terms of just like really pushing our limits. You know, you might have recently listened to the episode where we talked about doing a seven day fast, right? Not eating for 168 hours. We've done continuous blood glucose monitoring where we've done implants into our arms or finger pricking for ketone levels. We're doing all these types of you know nootropics and really making the best ones. Um, what I found uh, really refreshing when I met you for the first time was that um, you very much you know lived that ethos because when I look at a lot of doctors, they're unhealthy. Right. Like if you look at, we've done a actually a interesting survey amongst medical students that's not published yet. We hope to do so soon. Like a lot of doctors smoke because they're stressed. They do unhealthy habits. And if you look at a lot of doctors in cardiology or, um, you know, you think of the people giving speeches at these medical conferences, they're like 50 years old, they're overweight, they're grizzled, they don't look healthy. And I've always been the type of person to look at someone like that and be like, if you can't listen to your own advice and make yourself healthy, how the hell can you tell other people what to do for a healthy lifestyle? I think that's bullshit. Like, I think we sh if you really think that you're a medical expert on making humans optimal, then you should have that first optimal human be yourself. And when I see you, like, for, you know, you, you're clearly very fit, right? Like, um, thank you. Yeah, no, I think it's like you, you, you take your own education and research and apply that for yourself. And I think that kind of credibility, I think, is rare in this world where there's too many hypocrites who like sell certain things and don't actually care for them. Like I, I think, especially in Silicon Valley, like I think most startups founders don't even care about the space that they're doing, right? Like I want not to like hit on, you know, some enterprise SaaS company, but like who actually cares about, you know, making 401ks faster or something. I mean, not to hate on, if you're working on some 401k software, sorry about picking on you, <laughs> but like, honestly, like you didn't grow up as a kid being like, Hey, I want to make 401k software better. But I think we all had some notion of like, hey, I want to work on, I want to like explore the limits of humanity. Like I want to explore like the frontiers of space. I want to push the limits as like an athlete. Like I think there's a part of all of us that want to push what is possible. I feel very lucky for myself. And I mean, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on like, I feel very lucky that I'm able to push uh, the frontiers of understanding human performance and being at the peak of that. Um, yeah, your thoughts. Yeah, I, I I think it's interesting that you say that um, there's a lot of doctors who are like quote unquote unhealthy or overweight and obese, and I I, I don't know I, I'm influenced a lot by you know readings from like Gary Taubes or James Fung, but I think that there is a lot of guidelines or government you know um, regulations or government um, policies regarding and that they've established, you know, um, there's this like low fat kind of controversy. Um, and I think that, um, part of it is, you know, the will, like, you know, they're not disciplined, but part of it is just not really understanding like nutrition and metabolism. You know, if you're trying to like lose weight and you're doing opposite of what you're supposed to be doing, even though you believe that that is true, but you're doing opposite of what your body's evolved designed to, to do, designed right. to do right. then you can try really hard to do that right but your base knowledge is wrong basically but then you know the approach is wrong right right so you can have people who try really hard but if their understanding of nutrition metabolism metabolism is is not correct or off 
then they could be working against themselves, right? right? So even though they, you know, doctors are some of the most hardworking people, right? Yeah. So it it is confusing and it is kind of strange. I think it's a great segue into our personal story, how we met. I think we really started like talking and engaging once we got connected by a mutual friend, but I think we really got to know each other when we, when you started becoming really, really a regular to our fast, our we fast right. breakfast in San Francisco. Right. Um, how did you get into fasting? Yeah. Um, what, what was that story? Like talking about like our understanding of nutrition and metabolism. I mean, I what? think we're at the bleeding edge of making fasting a worldwide phenomenon here. I think that this is in the, I mean, in the midst of self-discovery, right. I was learning about, you know, nootropics, biohacking. And, uh, you know, I was on a trip in Taiwan and I was with a friend and I respected him because he was strong. <laughs> he looked fit. Right. And, uh, you know, during the trip he was like, Hey, I'm fasting. I'm doing like a 16, eight or 18, six schedule. And I was like, what are you talking about? Right. What do those numbers mean? And he was like, yeah, I, and he actually was very strict about it. He actually had a timer. He's like, I'm going to start fasting now. And it's going to be 16, 18 hours before I start eating. And I was thinking, Hey, that's, kind of stupid like crazy why why aren't you eating and uh but the thing is at the time i couldn't verify what he was doing he was trying to he explained concepts to me but it didn't actually stick my head right but the thing is during the taiwan trip i was like okay well if you're gonna do it i'm gonna try it too i did it and uh when i got back from taiwan i started reading up about it and so i found some several websites including jason fung's website and i started reading more in depth into fasting and then i realized that it wasn't really crazy. It just seemed like it, it was, it started reading more about it. And then I started reading about like ketosis. And then I started opening up my biochemistry book. And then I started reading biochemistry anew again. And like you were saying before, when you're a medical student, you only have four hours of biochemistry. Right. And at that time, you're just trying to memorize concepts, right. not really understanding these concepts. Cause you're like, Oh, it's just like chemistry and physics. You're never going to use it again. Right. A lot of these subjects that you learn in med school, you're thinking, hey, we're just learning this hard science, but how is it clinically applicable? And we think it's not going to be right. And then uh, but I started reading biochemistry. And I realized that a lot of what I learned, what I understood about metabolism was not very well informed. Right. All I had was, OK, you got to eat less or you got to move more to lose weight or change your body composition. But. There was never, I was never satisfied with that because there was never any like mechanism that really made sense to me. Right. When I looked into fasting, I realized that there is a biochemical backing to fasting. Yeah. And so at this point, were you like doing regular 16 eights? Like before you did, before you started coming to the We Fast Breakfast, like did you start doing like the 36 hour fast? Like, no, I didn't do 36 hour fast. I didn't hear about the monk fast. Right. I was mainly doing like an 18 six or 16 eight schedule. Right. And I was really trying to adjust to doing it. Right. And then I realized it was a lot easier than I thought it would be. Everyone's right. talking about willpower to like fast, but it's, it gets a lot easier. We can talk about metabolic adaptation later, but I started off just doing something simple. Instead of eating right when I got up, I would delay eating until one o'clock. Right. And then instead of eating late into night, I started to eat and finish eating by eight o'clock. Yeah. So I still try to get all my calories within a small window, but one of the things I employed in my framework of eating was t timing, timing my meals. And that was a foreign concept to me. 
You know, I always thought that in terms of calories, all, all that mattered was, you know, how many calories I had a day, right. how many of po- protein, how much of carbs and how much of fat. And, uh, you know, I was in the IIFYM camp, if it fits my macros camp. And, uh, you know, I didn't incorporate timing into right. it. But then I started incorporating timing and compressed my feeding window. And then I started noticing that I was able to, it became easier and easier and I wasn't hungry. Right. And there was so something what, like, that was changing some, my body. Did you get like performance, like in terms of energy, productivity, focus? Yeah. Or, fi- or physical benefits? So I think that... And like what is your current routine yeah. now? So I think that when I was exploring biohacking, fasting, I think, is one of the ultimate biohacks that I've discovered. And with fasting, you're changing your biotechnology to use fat for energy instead of carbs. And I noticed that when I was making that transition with fasting, I was becoming more alert and more um, energized. And I think that when, what happens is that when I become less dependent on like carbohydrates for energy, I was starting to employ my own body fat for energy. Right. And carbs, you need to actually eat it, right, in order to get it. Whereas like with fat, it's already on my body. Right. There's a storage system for it. Yep. And for some people, it's almost unlimited, right? And uh, point at you, obese people, right? Not Particularly po- overweight, <laughs> obese people. They they actually have a lot of fat in them. Yeah. And it's 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 there for a purpose. It's actually there. Yeah, it's just store a refrigerator of energy. Exactly. That you're not never using because you eat too much. Right. It's there. The it's a it's a it's a refrigerator. Right. And we could say it's eating too much, but I think that they. Uh, it, it's it's that um, it, they're constantly in like storage mode, right. right? They need to become catabolic or lower the insulin levels in order to break down their fat. Right. So I realized that when I was fasting, in terms of cognition, I was I was not getting that mental fog right. that I used to get after a certain meal. I get like tired. Right. I realized that when I became more ad- adapted to fats and ketones my brain was a lot more alert and I wasn't getting tired. Right. Like I used to get really sleepy like late afternoon or like early evening. Right. And then I didn't get that anymore. I actually feel like I would sleep a little bit less and still be alert the next morning. I think that what, what, what happens is that when you're fasting, your ketones are going up and then also there's a lot of your counter-regulatory hormones like adrenaline and adrenaline norepinephrine that gets is is not opposed by the insulin right when you're fasting your insulin goes down it's not opposed and then you're just a lot more in like this fight or flight fight or flight kind of mode where you're just kind of energized yeah energized yep yeah so i think i think yeah i think it's basically i mean we've talked about this a lot right like if you're constantly eating your insulin's constantly high so your body's not used to is always used to that super right. high level insulin, which is like pre-diabetes, and then you never recycle old damaged tissue. Exactly, so you're just creating yeah. bad mutations over right. and over. So again. potentially, theoretically, there could be mutations or, or you know, bad components in our like protein right. or cells that don't get that proper time to be evaluated. Right. And I, you know, I think about it as like you know, for the listeners out there, you know, a, a more relatable concept is that you know, like if you're building a house. Right. You can always build your house, 
but you can you have to get to that point where you have to slow down and inspect the house to see if there's any like damaged parts before yeah. building on top of it. Yeah. Because if you ignore and do not inspect the house, then there could potentially be problems later on, like you know. So yeah, like broken pipes or something. Broken that pipes been repaired or, as or like the second floor is damaged now. So instead of building right. the seventh floor, let's like spend a little bit of time to like scour through repair the second floor. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that like that's just like on the maintenance side. I think from the performance side, right? The interesting things from my perspective has been raising BDNF, right? That's how mm. Rise also works. Um, the comp, you know, our product, our nootropic Rise elevates BDNF levels, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is one of the key proteins that instigates neuron growth. Right. Um, and I think that's also in a lot of like fasting research. Exactly. There's it a, elevates BDNF right. as well. There's it a neuroscience HGH. specialist in Hopkins that talk about neurogenesis of, you know, actual yeah. neurogenesis brain cells in our brain when we're fasting so yeah so that's how i personally got into it right like i'm you know i want to optimize my brain my performance nootropics is one path and then fasting was another interesting path right. so it's like interesting how we were able to connect i guess you from um looking at it from like a friend doing it in taiwan and then me from uh looking at how to optimize my brain even further beyond just nootropics um and then going to fasting from that perspective. Because I think it's funny because I think when most people think about fasting, they think about it as fat weight right, loss. Right, right, And we're, if you're seeing us on camera, we're like relatively thin right. gentlemen here. I, I, um, yeah, I think that the concept that really stuck to me is that not only, oh, there's like a couple things. With ketosis, fat burning, there's a lot of things that people say about like losing weight. But you can't actually measure it. But with ketosis and fasting, you can actually measure like beta hydroxybutyrate right. or ketones in your blood. Are you burning fat? Well, you have to. Me you, you can actually measure the products of fat burning or fatty right. acid oxidation in your blood, right. and you can actually see the levels go up as you're right. burning fat. It's a necessary step in fat burning. You can't have fat burning without ketosis, right? Right. So that was hard evidence for me that this is the way to burn fat cool right if you start reading biochemistry you're going to learn that when you break down fat you're going to make ketones right uh the second thing that really stuck with me is what's called keto adaptation or fat adaptation if you're talking about being optimized right i don't want to be dependent on a, a fuel source that is limited sure. i want to be dependent on a fuel sources unlimited and in our bodies you know there's a limited storage capacity for glucose and glycogen right. in our liver and muscles, basically like 24 hours, 36 hours. But then for a fat, there's unlimited uh, storage system. Yeah, but I think so it's then, too simple. I think, yeah. it's, I think it's very easy to be too dogmatic, like, hey, carbs are bad or fats are good, and you know, or carbs are great and fats are bad. I think it's always a nuanced picture, right? Mm -hmm. I think if you're just fully fat adapted, well, the problem there is that you need glucose. You need glucose for power, sprint, yeah. power exercises, I, I think and that, movements, right? No. So, like, if you're just completely fat adapted, you're just 90% fat all the time, like, I, I think it's very true that, that you will not perform better. You will perform a lot worse in certain activities. So I think it's, like, a nuanced answer I, I th around, like... Yeah, I think it's nuanced. But, but, but I think that the end result is still the same in the sense that, like, right. oh, too many of us are fully always in glycolysis i think the happy medium is something like an intermittent fasting protocol where like for certain activities you want some carb loading so you can well, have a ton of power for like short-term bursts 
and in certain no, it's true. parts, like, of the, certain parts, like you want um, to be fully fat adapted. Right. I think. So my perspective on that is that, um, yeah, I think that you know, ninety nine point ninety nine percent of the day is you know you're in aerobic metabolism, and you could either you know metabolize carbs or you can metabolize fat. Right. And since for me, fat is almost like an unlimited fuel system. I want to be dependent on fat for the aerobic metabolism. Right. And you're right that when you're anaerobic, it's in order that, you know, you, you generally have to use glucose for energy. You have and, to. It's not even generally. And, it's just like you legit, ha- like right. there's no way to fur- right. anaerobically so, produce energy with no, it's ketones. True. So, and what percentage of the day are you like sprinting or going to anaerobic right. metabolism? Generally, not often. Right. Unless you're like, a, 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 particularly in a, like an, an athlete in that, in that uh, realm and um, and but for most of the time I would say you have to be it, it would probably be to, to your benefit to be optimized for fat metabolism right. the other thing I want to emphasize is that I think what you said is interesting is that oh you need glucose for anaerobic metabolism and I think that what happens when you're fat adapted I think our bodies are actually preserving the glucose because what happens when you become fat adapted is you have upregulation of all these enzymes to break down fat right and our body's going to preserve the glucose for those particular times when you're then you need to sprint right and where do you you know i think that you can get glucose from carbohydrates in your in your diet but there's also several other places that you can get glucose from when you break down fat or triglycerides through lipolysis there is one glucose moiety and then three fatty acids so you can get glucose just right. from breaking down fat right and then as you know with you know, amino acids, you know, you could potentially break down protein into amino acids and through the, through the liver, through gluconeogenesis, turn that into sugar. Right. Another thing I think that would be an interesting insight is that you can actually get glucose just from eating like animal meat. Right. Because it's like sugar inside the blood. Well, there's sugar. So yeah, like it's true. So number one, there's sugar inside the blood or sugar inside the muscles. Number two, there's fat in the meat. Right. And then as you know, fat is basically triglycerides too and then that has a glucose molecule right. attached to yeah it. i mean I think and also like, with uh, with meat there's protein and then that gets converted to right so i think that there's no such thing as essential carbohydrates but there is such thing as essential fatty acids and essential amino yeah. acids no i think there's like there is open discussion around like optimal right like macro breakdowns for certain uh types of activities and and I, I think, I, yeah, I think not one size fits all. It, so that's why i think like ideally i'd like to work with you and folks out there to come up with like proper macro uh Breakdown. breakdowns and pra- and proper like nootropic breakdowns for each specific activity for each specific type of lifestyle yeah. right because i think that um that's like a problem i see with like a lot of other like thought leaders or podcasters they're just like like hey freaking low carb high fat is 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 the bible or paleo is the bible or like that's all bs and just like normal balanced diet is the bible and i think it's it is a lot more subtle than that right like there are just trade-offs in terms of different dietary substrates um if you're a sprinter uh that you need or you're a power lifter you know you you might want to do something for like you're doing high fat low carb as a training protocol and then like like three four weeks before like your event or your competition like stack up a bunch of carbs I, obviously that's like a, just a contrived example but i think there's a lot of interesting uh study and innovation to be done on and, and varying the training protocols and mm-hmm. training inputs for optimizing certain 
outputs on a given day, right? Like how people talk about cycling, uh, different, yeah. you know, routines or cycling, like training right. uh, before, like, you know, different types of workouts before uh, end competition. I right. think there will be a lot more thoughtful, like eating and supplementation right before uh, competition. I think that yeah. that space is a lot more nuanced. I think it's not as developed. And I think that, um, you know, we've been talking about like optimal performance for, right. for like a very healthy male. But I think there's a lot of implications and a lot of things I learned about fasting that isn't just applied to the healthy who wants to be superhuman. Right. But then I've learned a lot about fasting as it can be applied to the unhealthy and how to make Yeah, no, I, that's a great segue. I want to bring that up because I know that you've not only been started being a regular at WeFast, you've really become a leader in our community and really been helping coach people through fasting and helping sick people like right. like tell me about your experience there yeah so i mean on the we fast community it's not all a bunch of silicon tech valley you know healthy no medical problems people who are looking to be like superhuman right and they're talking about fasting i think the majority of the people there are actually you know they're 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 uh, their BMI could be greater than 25 30 so yeah, yeah tell me about like you helping people like like te- like specifically sure sure so um you Probably know, you I've, I've, anonymize I've, I've, for names, yeah, I've been, but... I was, I think that in, you know, the end of last year or so I was doing a lot of reading about, you know, just understanding biochemistry, understanding fatty acid oxidation, ketones, et cetera. And we were applying it to like healthy individuals. You and I were doing continuous glucose monitors, right? Understanding like our baseline glucose levels, our fasting glucose in the mornings, you know, doing oral glucose tolerance tests on ourselves. Right. You know, you know, we're not diabetic and, you know, we're it's pretty insulin sensitive. Right. And, um, you know, I started thinking about how it can be applied to other individuals that aren't healthy. For example, like who people who are obese or have diabetes. Right. And the pathophysiology of those people is that they have insulin resistance or in hyperinsulinemia. And one of the things I that that, you know, came to my attention was. You know, like how can we apply fasting to the, you know, the overweight population and right. diabetes? And there's a lot of sources out there, and I learned that um, one of the things that I always thought was true was, like for example, for diabetics, we're, who are type two, we always get we're, we we give them insulin, and their cutoffs for their hemoglobin C's are are basically cutoffs for that tell the doctors when to give them you know insulin or other medications. And when I think about the pathophysiology of diabetes, you know, diabetes is a, a, a state where you're, you know, you're insulin resistant and you have high insulin levels. Yep. So why and are we giving insulin to these people that already have, they're not sensitive right. to insulin anymore. Right. You're feeding this death cycle. Right. And then when we read about, you know, fatty acid, fatty, fatty acid oxidation in biochemistry, in order to get to fat breakdown, you need your insulin levels low. Right. So if you're constantly giving insulin to patients and they know it, you give them insulin, they're like, hey, doctor, I gained like 10, 20 pounds. Well, insulin is a storage hormone. It's going to make them gain weight. Right. So in order to reverse their like overweight and obesity, it made sense that you need to have lower insulin levels. Right. So the only way to have lower insulin levels besides you know some magical drug that brings their insulin levels low is that the only way is through fasting right. and to ketosis. So just going back to your question, because I'm kind of rambling, right. is that, you know, on the WeFast group, there are, you know, a few people that, uh, you know, I, I, at first I thought it was all healthy people 
looking to fast. But, you know, I had a type two diabetic. Um, her name's Shirley and she, uh, posted on the, we fast group. And what I like about the community is that everyone freely posts and there's a lot of support. And so she was like, Hey, uh, you know, I have type two diabetes. I weigh 280 pounds. Is anybody here who has type two diabetes that are that, that fast and would like to help me through this process? Nobody really uh, responded. And I was, I'd read up about, you know, fasting and diabetes. And I was like, Hey, like I'll, you know, I'll coach you through this process. So, you know, she was also on a lot of medications. So she was on 180 units of insulin, which is, which is a lot, a lot. And even for my patients that I see in the it's hospital, like a, for, like a starter amount of insulin. What's the starter amount? Yeah. I mean, it, it can escalate, but you know, I usually see an order of like, maybe like, 20 to 40 units a day. So 180 units is like a, day. a ton. Right? So 180 units is, is a ton. Yeah. So I already, I'm already thinking that this person is insulin resistant. Right. Right. And the amount of insulin that I'm giving her is probably putting her through this like, you know, process where she's getting more insulin resistant. Right. And so she's on 180 units. And, um, and uh, so in order to faster, right, people can get hypoglycemic from exogenous insulin so if i'm fasting her and she's not eating and i give her the same amount of insulin she's going to start to get hypoglycemic and issues can happen so i agreed to help her out and i said hey in order to fast you i'm going to need to manage some of your insulin levels and we had established that i'm not her physician um, but i would help her through this fasting process um so my understanding so i knew that being hyperglycemic is better than being hypoglycemic because hypoglycemia can lead to, you know, coma, seizures, and death. And so in order to do that, I decided to de-escalate some of her insulin and have her fast. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different regimens out there, like 18-6, 16-8, you know, every other day, uh, mul multiple day fasts. And the thing that was easiest for me to help her dose her insulin was that she go on a sort of a Monday, 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 Wednesday, Friday fast. And so I could dose the, her insulin the night before. So she committed to a Monday, Wednesday, Friday fast. And then she eventually. So three 36 hour fast every week, right? Three 36 hour fast every week. She actually did. Uh, she actually realized like how easy it was. And sometimes some days she actually fasted for like 70 hours. Some, some weeks she actually fasted right. for 70 hours. And I noticed that in one month, her weight dropped from 280 to 260. Uh, so, and, and then her insulin requirements dropped from 180 units down to less than 20. That's insane. All in yeah. one month. And in my, you know, relatively short career or relatively long career, however you want to think about it as a physician, I've never seen such uh, an improvement in a diabetic Right. Usually, I think they just get them, worse. They usually just get worse. For you the never most manage part, it, right? you know, you're you're telling, yeah. So for the most part, I've seen type two diabetics just eventually get worse and worse. Right. I mean, there's some diabetics that eventually figure out how to like lose weight, but right. for the most part, the it seemed like the general rule is that, and and you and people learn it in med school that the diabetes is a chronic disease that, that never gets, gets better. That basically is there with them. And it can potentially get worse. Right. And I was just seeing before my very eyes were. A reversal of diabetes and this is around Christmas time New Year's and of course everyone's like being grateful and right. 
and with their families. And, you know, I just thought to myself that this experience with her was one of the most like gratifying experiences as a physician that I've ever had. Right. To be able to reverse like a chronic illness or reverse a disease that you thought was always chronic and seeing her insulin requirements going down, losing weight, using this free uh, method of fasting and was like just amazing. I mean, th- that experience with her colored, you know, it, it, it gave me more, you know, faith in this whole process. I started to uh, coach uh, two more other diabetic patients. Uh, one of them, as we know, um, he started out at, you know, 180 pounds. Now he's at 160 pounds. And he was on about like 50 units of insulin, and he's not on insulin anymore at all. That's also in a month. And this yeah. is all within a month. Right. Another patient of mine that I started coaching around New Year's, she also weighed 260 pounds, and now she's on 235. And she's also pretty much off insulin, maybe up to five units. And it was, it, it's just amazing. Like I've, I'm taking care of these patients, telling them the right method. Right. And seeing results. Yep. And one of the interesting things about healthcare is that oftentimes when we meet patients in the hospital when, or when they come in, you know, when we say, oh, how did they get their exacerbation or how did they get sick? I feel like there's always like a blaming game, like, Hey, these patients didn't take their medications. These patients didn't do what I told them to do. This patient started eating junk food. Junk food. Right. And then there's always kind of like a blame. Like the reason why they came in to see us is because they did something that they weren't supposed to. And, right. and it's their fault. Right. But if we're telling them the wrong thing to do and we're telling them that in order to lose weight, you know, you eat more, which is opposite of, you know, you're telling them to eat more, which is raising their insulin levels, or eat more carbs, which is going to raise their insulin levels. We're telling them to basically get fat and yeah. go into storage mode. Yeah, existing practice is making people worse. It's shooting the patient in the foot without knowing it. We think we're, you know. No, just say it, right? Like, yeah. I, I'm, I'm okay to say it because I'm, I'm not an MD. But, right. like, existing standard of practice for diabetes is making people worse. Like, it's a joke. Right. No, right? Like, essentially, you're telling people, hey, fast. Like, I've reversed diabetes for three people in a month. This is not like some quackland. Like, I, you know, these are real freaking people. Right. Um, let's, I want to see doctors out there and show me how many patients you've reversed from diabetes in three months, giving them more insulin. Right? We understand the biochemistry there. You're making people worse. Right. I, I think it's, it's not, I'm not going to be pussyfoot around it. That, like, right. I think what we're doing with our fasting community, with our thinking around, our better understanding around biochemistry is helping uh, people get better, right? I think it's like we should be doubling down on the opportunity here to like make this uh, a mainstream um, commonplace, right? Like it's great for me as a healthy person that's not diabetic, making me more productive. And it's like clearly helping people that are uh, have metabolic syndromes get a lot better. This is the analogy I always make. Like imagine you get to open your eyes every 10 seconds when you're driving. Mm-hmm. That's what like current medical practice is like. Right. Like you check in every yeah, three months, six yeah. months, like come back in three months and we'll check in. It's like, okay, go this direction, close your eyes for 10 seconds and then open. Oh crap. Got to right. shift really hard. And I think that's where, you know, what we were doing with continuous glucose monitors, we're yeah, actually seeing getting that data, applying right. like the hacker ethos or 
or the engineering approach to the human body. Let's provide more data on people so people right. can make decisions quicker. And on actually, a daily basis. one of the interesting things is that when we applied the continuous glucose mantra ourselves, I gained a lot of insight into my own insulin yeah. sensitivity yeah. that I wouldn't have known before. Yep. For example, you know, we tell diabetics to to you know eat less, right. but which eat what less? You know, we always just tell them to eat less, but the reason why we tell them to eat less is because we don't want their insulin to go up, right? right? But which macronutrients or which, which, yeah, which macronutrients actually cause their insulin to grow, go up? When I had a continuous glucose monitor, I experimented, you know, N equals one, and I actually saw, you know, when I start eating certain things, my glucose could go up. Right. So, you know, I, would, I, I tried eating, uh, I tried drinking a 75 mil cc like Coca-Cola, Coke, right? right? And well, it's not 75 cc's, 75, 750, 750 milliliters, milliliters, right? milliliters, like a can, like a can. And then I saw saw my glucose level Spike go like up crazy. before my very eyes. Yeah. And there was this like this like visceral reaction, like oh my gosh, I thought it was like a benign thing, just drinking a Coke, but then I saw my glucose shoot up within half an hour or one yep. hour. And I then mean, I think that's like one thing. It's like you got to have numbers. That's again right. the Bahakir approach, right? Measure things so you can optimize it. Right. That's what we've been saying and, from day one. And when I saw that, you know, it. I mean, I don't usually drink Coke, but if someone, if a patient saw that, that that would raise their insulin, like glucose levels, and uh, by by proxy raise their insulin levels, maybe they would actually drop stop drinking yeah. the Coke. Yeah. And then I I started eating certain things, and that what that's what kind of affirmed also my my. Um, belief in the kind of high fat, uh, uh, low carb thing is that I, I would eat bacon, eggs, avocados, spinach with butter, and drink a coffee with creamer. Right. And my glucose levels were stable. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think again, I, I think again, not to go overly prescriptive, right? Like right. I think glucose is one biometric, right? I think, um, like there are concerns around, okay, maybe elevating free fatty acids, that might make your mitochondria actually less efficient in the long term. So I think there's like a balancing act of like, okay, um, going pure ketogenic diet, which is like 90% fat, um, is interesting. Um, shift your metabolism in an interesting way, but is it again still optimal, right? You're just like, you're shifting it, and you're 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 you're, sh you're shuffling the levers right. in, in a different I, and combination. I, and I think that you and it's know, interesting, but like I wouldn't say like, hey, everyone, let's all start right. eating. I mean, I, I don't 90% fat. Now. Yeah, I don't want to generalize that. Right. Um, that's you know, the rule for everybody. But I think that it's more of the rule than the exception. Right. And, you know, based on, you know, readings in biochemistry and nutrition that, um, that that is the way to burn fat is through. Sure. Low cool. And, and then I want to change gears here. Um, what gets you excited about working with NutriBox, right? You're a busy practicing doctor. Why do you spend, you know, two days a week with us, like pushing the forefront of biohacking? Like what's get, what gets you excited working with me and the rest of the team here? Um, my, from my experience as a physician, especially working in certain healthcare systems is that there's a lot of red tape, nothing, you know, you propose an a quality improvement project or you propose something and, you know, you basically have to get president Trump to sign on this change. And so things in the current healthcare system is happening generally very slowly. And it's not when I'm happening, it's, at it's all. just not happening at all. Right. Um, I actually went to my department and I talked to them about, you know, I went to the nutrition department and asked, you know, what they're, what they were doing. 
I talked to, uh, you know, my chiefs about, you know, incorporating potentially fasting into, you know, patient care, but there's a lot of resistance. Um, also because it's a generally foreign concept and there probably needs a, a, you know, more education or understanding of it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I get it because I was on the other side, you know, if you told me about fasting, I would have been, you're crazy, get at, you know, like, I don't think that this should be broad. And of course, you know, they're going to want to know, you know, is there, what's the evidence behind it and such. And it was just happening really slowly. When I, when I met you, Jeff, um, you're, you're one of those guys who are like go-getters and you're just going to make things happen. You just, you know, like I, I see you and, you know, you, you just, you're uh, <laughs> this fearless leader that is going to make something to change. I could just see it. Um, and, you know, I wanted to be a part of it because you, you're, you're like firing up this like fasting community and actually getting the word out. Right. You know, and people are benefiting from yeah. I mean, your again, thanks to you, you like literally helped three, three people. Yeah. So like, turn non-diabetic. Yeah. Turn healthy. And I and I see that, you know, our partnership uh, working together as an opportunity to actually make a change across the United States. I think that you have already have you've had a lot of influence in the nootropic space and, you know, biohacking. And I think that through th- this out through this you know, through Nutribox, I think that we can affect change on a, on a, a large scale. And I think that understanding fasting ketosis and helping educate, you know, our um, viewers, our listeners, and just spreading the word, I think is going to make a huge impact on the United States. Yep. And I think that obesity and diabetes being like so prominent in our, in, 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 in America, we can, if we just focus on those, that population and affect, you know, the understanding of like fasting and ketosis can have a huge impact on our healthcare system and healthcare costs. Yep. Because down the line, you know, you, you have obesity, you know, some of them will have diabetes and then they'll have coronary disease, strokes, renal disease. Yeah. So, I mean, it's basically solving the root causes as opposed to... Right you let this thing fester and then in 10 years they have all these like you have 17 different diseases that they have to damage across the entire system. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's, you know, let's let's change how society thinks about their health, about eating routines, around nootropics, around all sorts of power hacks, a person at a time, a day at a time. I think we're lucky to have you on board and uh, yeah, let's let's change the world together. Well, that was a great conversation. I'm sure we'll have many more on the Thinking Podcast. Um, I'd love for you to join me on future podcasts as we dive into more technical conversations with other researchers, other practitioners of various biohacks. Um, but in the meantime, for listeners out there, uh, Dr. Lamb is, you know, not just a, 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 a legit biohacker personally, but again, he has robust medical training and, and, and clinical experience. Um, I think some topics that we'll cover at another point will be diving really deep down into ketosis, a lot of these like technical terms around fasting and the performance benefits and trade-offs of ketosis versus glycolysis versus other, you know, the the various forms of metabolism. Um, But for this week's episode, we'll wrap it here. You can check us out on Google Play, Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Uh, See you next week. Uh, Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Thanks.